Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm very close to the Haitian community in Montreal. Saint-Michel, this neighborhood is really have a, a large group of migrants, a lot of Black people. There are very clear cases of environmental racism. The heat of the space, the air quality is um, one of the worst in Montreal. Uh, for example, the lack of green space there. That sounds crazy, but there's almost no parks in this area or, you know, proper green spaces. Knowing that this area is where the temperature is higher, for example, during summer, like when you are there, you, you feel it, you see the difference. Uh, when you go outside of this neighborhood and you go to the, how can I say that? <laughs> you go to the white neighborhoods, then it's that it's completely different. Climate change impacts myself and my own community in Toronto and impacts my family back home in Barbados. I don't know if, if I have children, if they'll be able to see it. Or if they have children, they'll be able to go back home and where this is where we're from. Like, and people don't realize, like, they're just destroying, like, all these, like, little nations for nothing, for just economic greed, which is really hard. Young people struggling with an old problem in Canada. And as you just heard abroad, climate change affects all of us, but it has a disproportionate impact on racialized communities. Today we hear how young Black Canadians are pushing the boundaries in the struggle for climate justice. And we hear from their inspiration, the so-called father of the cause, who led the way in connecting racial inequality to environmental injustice. At 75, he's rallying younger generations. This is calling for a race, but it's not a sprint. Uh, I tell people it's more like a marathon relay. You run your 26.2 miles, and then you pass the baton to the next generation to run that 26.2. But at the same time, you don't stop running and stand on the sideline and watch. You keep working, you keep helping and supporting. And that's what I see those young people that, that I talk with in Canada. That's that passing baton and to assist and support uh, so that that last leg of that race, that we finish strong, we don't drop the baton, uh, that we keep our eyes on that finish line, on that prize. And I think, and I'm optimistic, I, I'm hopeful that we will get there. Optimism and hope, those seemingly indispensable tools for climate activists. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. Those young women that you heard earlier, Alison Doyle Braithwaite and Leila Kantav, they're interns with the Canadian Coalition for Environmental and Climate Justice. The group believes you can't battle climate change without thwarting environmental racism. Nalo Charles is the co-founder of the coalition. Nalo, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Environmental racism, it isn't a new term, but for people who might not be familiar with it, can you give us a brief description, explain what it is for people who might not know? 
Yes, environmental racism is a term that was uh, first used uh, by the end of the 70s in the uh, United States. And uh, it was actually to describe the fact that some communities, uh, specifically Black, Indigenous, immigrant, and low-income communities, tend to be unfairly uh, exposed to pollution and to the risk of climate change. So when we talk about environmental racism, we're actually talking about the power differences between certain groups and the difference in environmental protection that um, some communities have versus more privileged communities. There was a previous bill that was introduced by former liberal MP Lenore Zahn in the last parliament that, that addressed this issue, and it received widespread support. But it died on the order paper when the election was called. And then this week, suddenly the Green Party reintroduced a, a similar version of it, and that had nothing to do with your coalition at all. But I'm wondering if you think that a bill like this could actually become law in this parliament. Is the support there? So, yes, I think a bill can definitely be adopted based on what we've seen in, in the last couple of months. We've had the support of most major uh, political parties in Canada. But what I think is very important is to remember what the history of this movement and this bill is. It really started with, uh, you know, Lenore Zan and Dr. Ingrid Waldron pushing up this bill. So with the last federal election, uh, the process was stopped, but it wasn't the first time. It was the second time that that bill died. So in terms of our coalition, our priority right now is trying to work with the government, especially because we're lucky enough to have a government that for the first time included environmental justice in the mandate letter. So we're trying to work with the government to see if we can actually use a, a different avenue, uh, working closely with them to embed environmental justice in their government practice and, and their own bill. So while we will always be supportive of environmental justice work, and environmental justice bills, we think that uh, we need to give an opportunity to the government to see if they actually will uh, follow through with their commitments. Bill C-230 called on the government to examine the links between race, socioeconomic status, and environmental risk. And, and Ingrid Waldron, who you mentioned already, who co-founded the bill, has already started mapping environmental racism across Canada. I'm wondering what the challenges are of collecting that kind of data right now. So Dr. Ingrid Waldron worked on a similar project for Nova Scotia and for specific communities. We're trying to look at the entire country and see if we can collect data and uh, even create a map that will help us track the environmental racism events and patterns all around the country. But when you're trying to collect this type of data, it's very difficult. So something I always tell people is that we actually need hyperlocal data. And hyperlocal data is not data that the government usually collects. So we're actually really asking for some systemic changes here, and we're hoping that uh, this will happen very soon. And the systemic changes are more than legislation, I would think. Exactly. So the legislation is one of the ways to bring the conversation in, in the country and also to give an opportunity to the leaders to show to uh, the entire community in Canada that this issues matter so that we can tell the stories so that we can find more allies to increase the environmental protection of some of the communities that, that have been really left out of uh, most of the environmental progress that we had uh, over several decades.
Now, I just I want to change gears here. I wanted to play you um, some tape from one of the interns that the coalition sent to the COP26 uh, climate change talks in Glasgow uh, last year. This is Tiana Connolly. We didn't meet any other Black Canadian youths. And so it's kind of like they've had the BIPOC Canadian delegation for how long? And so all of this time, where have the Black youths been? It's just not right to use the term if you're not going to represent it. We're supposed to be a part of those conversations as well. And when you when we're not there, then, you know, we're left out of the decision making and we're left out of the benefits. I'm wondering to what extent black people of any age have been included in these Canadian delegations in the past. Well, um, so what we hear from people who have been going to COP for the last 25 years or the last 10 years, we're hearing that this was probably the first time that there was actually a Canadian delegation that intentionally sent some black youth to COP. And we didn't really do it to make history. We just did it because that's that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to create more diversity in the environmental sector because, well, environmental issues affect all of the communities. So we need to have everyone to be part of the solution. We definitely had the help of a lot of the, the established organizations in the environmental sector, but definitely, if we were not there, if the initiative wasn't there, if the coalition wasn't there, if Dr. Ingrid Walton wasn't there, I don't know if uh, Tiana, Allison, and Leila, these three interns, uh, would have been in this COP conference. What do you think it represents, the fact that they were there? What, beyond the symbolism, what does it achieve? It's amazing to see how they were able to learn so much in just about two weeks and how they were able to go from people who were kind of shy to speak in public to really becoming outspoken environmental justice advocates. Also, it's amazing to see how they were able to look at this space and notice the silent uh, discrimination that's happening and, and the silent barriers that we don't really see. And I think uh, for them, it's something that's unacceptable because they grew up with a notion that uh, we're in a post-racial era because of the generation they live in. So that's something that's very surprising to them. And so, yes, there's a generational shift where we see young people being a lot more active and I would say more vocal when they see discrimination like that because for them, that's not normal. So they don't normalize it. And I think that's amazing. What, what kinds of invisible walls did you see them knocking down? So... Uh, Invisible walls, like being in meetings with elected officials, with uh, people who are actually powerful people, and where normally in the room, um, years ago, it was only white people. And when there was some kind of diversity, maybe you had some indigenous groups who could find a way to get there. So having a black voice, three black voices in these meetings, it was one of the first times that um, this happened. And I think it's extremely important because even just sitting there uh, saying nothing, being uh, visible in this space, it, it makes people have to think about you. Uh, we spent time here talking a lot about the work that you do and your hopes for the future. But I'm wondering about you and what drives you to want to do this kind of work. For me, I often say I don't feel like I really chose to be in this work. It's just part of my identity. It's just part of my personal story. So I grew up in, in, a, in a country where uh, environmental racism and colonization has been a reality for a very long time. And uh, although I wasn't 
aware of that at the beginning. I became aware of that, and that led me to want to work in an environment. And then trying to work in the environment, realizing that there were actually some barriers, and I was just trying to do something good. And I couldn't understand why there would be barriers for me to do something good for society. Why is it a luxury to be able to work in the environmental sector when it's something that's so needed? Uh, so for me, I think it's about uh, giving opportunities to uh, some young people and opportunities that I, I, I didn't have and finding a way to uh, break the barriers that uh, I, I face myself. I love Charles. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. heard him talk about breaking down barriers, knocking down invisible walls, and that's what he's hoping happens for these young interns, young people who you heard from earlier, Leila Kantav and Tiana Connolly. They say it is already making a difference. I think it changed everything for me. This internship, first of all, is was tackling an issue, which was, you know, a lack of diversity in the environmental sector. But on top of that, it actually did what it was supposed to do. It opened doors and I get to be in meetings, I get to work with different organizations and meet different people. And this definitely helped me, give me clarity on what I want to do after. Sometimes you just need someone to help you or put you in a place to, to be successful. And I think that's what I got from this internship and it empowered me a lot, being able to see other young people being empowered as well as being around people who believed in me and, and gave me access to resources and access to typically exclusionary spaces. That's what I would like to do. And I think that's where a lot of the change is going to come from. The term environmental racism was actually first coined in 1982. And a man named Robert Bullard had a lot to do with it. He's widely known as the father of environmental justice. And he lives in Texas, where he's been fighting the fight for four decades. His first book on the subject, Dumping in Dixie, Race, Class, and Environmental Quality, was published in 1990. Now he's a distinguished professor of urban planning and environmental policy at Texas Southern University. And he's been serving on the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Robert Bullard, hello. Hello. You started out in this field doing research for a lawsuit that your wife, Linda McKeever Bullard, brought against a waste management company. What was it that you started looking at back then? Well, that was way back in 1979 when I was drafted into collecting um, data and doing a study to look at the location of municipal uh, landfills and incinerators and waste dumps in Houston uh, from the 1930s up to 1978. And so my job was to provide empirical evidence and data in support of the first lawsuit in the United States challenging environmental racism using civil rights law. I had 10 students in my research methods class. 
uh, at Texas Southern University in Houston, a historically black college university. And uh, I designed a study and I told my students, uh, students, we have a research project and there was no archival databases or anything that was systematic like it is now, like a cell phone or, or Google. We had to locate these um, landfills and incinerators and garbage dumps by way of records and doing windshield surveys, going out and physically surveying and eyeballing where mountains are in Houston. And Houston is flat. It's only like 54 feet above sea level. So anytime you see a mountain in Houston, it's a garbage dump. And so we were able to put pins in a map and look at the census tracts locations and color coordinate that with race and ethnicity. And what we found was astonishing. We found that five out of five of the city-owned landfills, six out of eight of the city-owned incinerators, and three out of four of the privately-owned landfills in Houston over that period of time from the 30s and up to 1978 were located in predominantly Black neighborhoods in Houston. And when I say predominantly Black, that's like me saying my family is predominantly Black. These are all Black neighborhoods that were created by redlining and Jim Crow segregation. So even though Blacks only made up 25% of the population, 82% of the garbage was dumped on on Black people. And that was an eye-opener for me. We went to trial uh, in 1985. We lost the case in court because the judge did not want to see a white judge, must have been 150 years old, uh, didn't want to <laughs> see that this was racism. And so we lost the case, but the study itself set the foundation for environmental justice research. And, and my wife, who uh, at the time set the legal theory and analysis for how this was a form of discrimination and should be protected by civil rights law. That's the long story in a short version. Uh, but um, that was 42 years ago. 42 years ago. I, I, I'm curious. I, in a sense, you lost the battle, but but you won the war. <laughs> well, if you want to put it that way, you know, I'm a, <laughs> you know, I was in the uh, Marine Corps uh, from 1968 to 1970 and Vietnam era veteran. And so it was war. It was literally war fighting an uphill battle in a city that didn't have zoning, fighting a company that's listed on the uh, uh, New York Stock Exchange and, and the second largest waste company in the world and headquartered in Houston. So it's almost like, well, we were fighting Goliath and and the uh, the other side had at least a half dozen lawyers from a blue chip law firm, Fulbright and Jaworski. <laughs> and it was then it was wow. just my wife and myself and the community uh, were fighting. And but it was a just fight. You know, it was ahead of this time. If we would have a case like that today in 2022, we would probably win it. Because we have more tools, we have more refined, precise uh, metrics to look at these kinds of information. And there's so many studies that have come out, you know, over the last four, four decades. And even the federal government <laughs> has now recognized that these are real legitimate issues that must be, uh, in a way, codified in law and protected and enforced equally across the board. And I want it took four decades. Uh, yeah, it did. <laughs> and it's still ongoing. And I want to come up to date. But first, I just want to stay back with that first case, because you said something that I, I think is quite interesting, especially with the context that you grew up with Jim Crow laws and segregation and suffered all of that. You said you were astonished when you started looking at, at what was being done. 
why were you astonished? And also, if I can just ask you a favor for our listeners, if you could explain what redlining is. Well, I grew up in the South, Jim Crow South. I grew up in a, in Alabama, in South Alabama, and went to all black uh, elementary, middle, and high school. In my neighborhood, it was all black. The streets were not paved. We didn't have sidewalks. We didn't have street lights, And sewer lines uh, stopped at our neighborhood where they were in all these uh, infrastructure were in, in the white community. So I grew up with that. But at the same time, when I did the study in Houston and saw those pins in a map and saw without exception the pervasiveness of racial redlining, which is a form of, of discrimination that will deny certain types of amenities, certain types of things like paved streets, like uh, street lights, like sewer lines, like parks and green space. Those are the amenities. But then you look at the disamenities, those things that other people don't want and say, put it somewhere else. To put it somewhere else, that was the garbage dumps, the incinerators, the landfills. And when you look at those pens, 82% of all the pens were in black neighborhoods. Now, when you see that on a map, you have to realize that this was not something that was accidental or coincidental. It was systematic structural racism that was driving uh, these pens. These are historically black neighborhoods that were created by Jim Crow segregation and the waste companies and the city and the county and the state followed that pattern over five decades. That was astonishing to me. This was 1979. And so, you know, we've had, we've gone through the 60s of the civil rights movement but this was something that had, without any break in the continuity of just dumping on black people, that's the, the aha moment for me. It's like, wow, this is happening in the fourth largest city, in a city that, that has a half million black people. And it was not like you're there, you know, the largest black community in the South in terms of the population wise. And this city was actually doing it in 1979. Wow. I mean, you, you, so you have in your hands this stark portrait of what you were talking about, and yet you have this man that you described as a 150-year-old white judge. <laughs> and I'm wondering beyond him, how difficult was it to get people to hear, believe, understand what you were showing them? Let me just break it down. The maps, the statistics, and the, the data they were all pointing to one conclusion, that this was racism being practiced and it was intentional. This was not accidental. And we could not get any support from the environmental groups. Now, this is, you know, you have to realize that 1979, that was almost a decade after the first Earth Day. When I showed the environmental groups these data and those maps, the response that I got was, whoa. Isn't that where the, the landfills and, and, and the dumps are supposed to be? And that was like, oh, so you are also uh, ignorant to the fact that environmental racism is, is happening right here and, and your environmental radar is not even going up. But it didn't stop with the environmental groups, the white groups. It also penetrated the oldest civil rights organization in the United States. I'm not going to call any names, but you know the initials, the NAACP. We yeah. showed them that data. 
And their response was, well, we don't work on environmental issues. We work on housing discrimination, discrimination in education, employment, and voting. So you have two tracks, civil rights and environmentalism. And those two tracks were separate and they did not converge. It took almost two decades for civil rights and environmentalism to converge with the understanding that these are environmental issues, they are justice issues, and they are civil rights issues. We're still dealing with that uh, lack of understanding how these environmental issues, also issues of justice, fairness, and equity, even in 2022. So you, in fact, were the one that was pushing that rock up a hill for two decades. Why did you keep pushing? Why did What did it take to keep pursuing it? Well, you know, I, I'm a sociologist by training, and I tell people I do not do dead white man sociology. <laughs> I do what's called scientifically kick-ass sociology in the mold of one of my heroes, sociology heroes, W.E.B. Du Bois. Du Bois was a scholar. He was a prolific author, and he was an activist. He helped founded the NAACP. Uh, he wrote all kinds of of books, and he did some of the first empirical studies, sociology studies dealing with race. And so I, I wanted to mold my career after Du Bois. So when I started discovering, you know, this initial findings in Houston, I wanted to know, is this just a Houston phenomenon? Because Houston is different. It was not just Houston. It was not just the South. It was the entire United States. And later when we expanded our analysis and our model to look at the world, <laughs> we found that it was the same thing happening all over the world. When did climate change start to figure into the work you do? Well, you know, climate change was one of those areas that, that was still on the periphery when it comes to the justice issue. The first time that justice was integrated into the climate framework for many of the groups on the ground was in The Hague. And there were a group of environmental justice grassroots groups and leaders decided that we were going to hold a climate justice side event that would be parallel to the meeting going on in The Hague. And we had planned it for a couple of hundred people and at least 500 uh, groups showed up and a huge delegation from the U.S. Now that that's after they've had, you know, at least four COP meetings. But at COP5, we were able to build out this whole concept of climate justice. And from then on, it became the fastest growing part of the climate movement, the, the climate justice part. You spoke earlier about how mapping and, and data helped draw that picture in the 1970s and informed understanding about environmental racism. That kind of work is only just starting here in Canada. And I'm wondering what you make of the fact that it's only just begun here. Well, you know, when you look at environmental justice and you look at the tools that are available for research and especially tools that are user friendly with communities that are on the front line and the fence line, it takes time and it takes pressure. Uh, this is not something that the federal government decided it wanted to do out of its own benevolence or kind heartedness or thoughtfulness. This is something that pressure was brought to bear within those agencies to do it. And we're still refining. And so I think Canada uh, has to look around and see that most likely 
the tools that the U.S. have developed and could easily be adapted to what's happening, you know, north of us and see some of the same, most likely the same kinds of uh, spatial disparities, uh, income, as well as race and ethnicity and geography occurring. You know, I don't think this is unique to the U.S., but I, I do think that having an organized electorate and an organized uh, movement really will make a difference. It really makes a difference uh, as to the level of, of mobilization. And what we're talking about is intergenerational mobilization, uh, not just uh, older people, boomers, but but looking at Zoomers, millennials and younger uh, and Gen Xers uh, outnumber boomers in the U.S. And so it's like when that population uh, really uh, starts to energize and, and, and mobilize and organize and and vote, we get change. They'll tell me, Dr. Bullard, you've been working on this for 40 years. And we say when it comes to climate change, we don't have 40 years. They are right. I just you, you've given me this entree because um, everything you're talking about, about uh, younger generations and people doing more and more, because a lot of what's happening is, is built on your shoulders. And, and you, quite frankly, are a bit of a rock star to, to younger <laughs> generations. And I just want to play some tape for you from a young Canadian woman named Alison Doyle Braithwaite. Mm-hmm. She was at COP26 in Glasgow, as were you attending, mm-hmm. attending the summits there. And she met you. I just want you to listen to what she told us. I actually saw him at this like little kiosk. Um, my supervisor, he pointed him out and it was really fun. So we walked up and he introduced us and it was just crazy to me because I have heard so much about him and I was just so excited. He's just such a sweet man too. I think it was just powerful just to see him in person and I was just in shock. It was just an amazing experience, like one of my highlights for sure at COP. So how does that feel to hear about the kind of impact you, you are having on young people like Allison? Well, you know, I remember that. I remember that moment and it was great to see those young people from Canada and to talk with them. I'm a teacher by heart and I love teaching. I spent my entire career teaching young people. And you never know, you know, who's listening and who will go out and make that change and be that change agent. And that's what keeps me going. This is calling for a race, but it's not a sprint. Uh, I tell people it's more like a marathon relay. We know there's no such race. You run your 26.2 miles and then you pass the baton to the next generation to run that 26.2. But at the same time, you don't stop running and stand on the sideline and watch you keep working, you keep helping and supporting. And that's what I see those young people that, that I talked with in Canada that was in, in Glasgow. That's that passing baton and to assist and support uh, so that that last leg of that race, that we finish strong, we don't drop the baton, uh, that we keep our eyes on that finish line, on that prize. And I think, and I'm optimistic, I, I'm hopeful that we will get there. I have to ask you this is the last question. You've been so generous with your time, and I appreciate it. You mentioned W.E.B. Du Bois, the American sociologist, the person you wanted to model your career on. What do you think he would think of you in in 2022? <laughs> wow. I would hope that he would uh, uh, be looking down and say, oh, good student. <laughs> you know, I, I graduated from Atlanta University uh, Department of Sociology my master's degree, and he founded that department. 
He, he did most of his research at Atlanta University. So I would hope that he would say, good student, uh, keep, keep going. <laughs> and maybe he'd give you an A. Yes, or if not an A, <laughs> an A minus <laughs> or a B plus. <laughs> it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if there were younger people learning about Robert Bullard right now or meeting him who have decided that they're going to emulate him as they grow up. And so, as he says, the baton is being passed to a new generation. Well, our show this week was produced by Rachel Sanders. The What on Earth team includes associate producer Serena Renner and producer Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Our senior producer is Manisha Janakaram. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.